Paul's mission as given to him by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus was to transfer people or call people from the power of darkness to the power of the beloved son, Jesus Christ. And that transfer has been won for us on the cross through the death of Christ, through the blood that's been shed for us. But we need to make it effectual by uh, expressing faith. But also part of that transfer is renouncing the old ways of breaking with the old covenants that we had submitted ourselves to. And what I'd like to do is speak in this session about um, the, the nature of that process of rejecting the old covenant, the old contract that we've lived under. Muhammad experienced a very significant rejection and he responded to that by striving. Uh, the rejected spirit was in a sense compensated for by jihad and by violence. Jesus was rejected but he responded to that by embracing rejection, by going to the cross and uh, saw the vindication really that was brought in his resurrection. And Jesus is the key, his cross and his resurrection are the key to finding release from the two covenants of Muhammad. Those two covenants, the Shahada and the Dhimma pact for Muslims and non-Muslims who are submitted to, to Islam in, in uh, one of those two ways, uh, a significant spiritual power. Um, there's a significant spiritual power behind those covenants. They represent a substantive legal spiritual claim over Muslims and over those that have lived under Islam. And uh, I want to speak now about some of the steps, the, the, the ground rules that are needed to, to observe and address in, in finding out how to be free from those covenants. <clears throat> I'm going to speak about uh, footholds and, and the necessity of dealing with them in finding freedom. I'm going to speak about uh, the role that generational ties play and why they're important in dealing with the dhimma and also with the shahada and uh, how to break them. I'll be speaking about blood pacts or blood oaths, oaths that are made uh, with a curse of death attached to them, and also the keys to exercising authority in the name of Jesus to have done with and do away with uh, the covenants of the past that would bind us. Firstly, um, when we're claiming spiritual freedom in Jesus Christ, it's very sensible and necessary to identify and deal with all the doorways or all the footholds that might exist in our life. Remember that uh, Jesus said that Satan had no foothold on him because he was without sin. And Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold in your life. Uh, those footholds are things that you've committed to or done or perhaps that your ancestors have committed to or done which give Satan legal rights uh, that he claims against you. Satan is by nature a legalist and will claim whatever grounds he can. What is needed is a truth encounter whereby the lies and deception that empower these ties are confessed and renounced and, and uh, the, the old ways are broken and the power of the cross can be applied uh, to destroy the old, the old covenants with death. When we appeal to Christ as our saviour, we receive God's forgiveness and we're buried with Christ and identified with him. We are set aside as people that uh, Satan has no more lawful charge against and over whom he has no hold. But sometimes it's very helpful for us to make that quite explicit and to deal with the specific areas of bondage. Uh, we found in uh, caring for people, for example, that have come out of witchcraft or Satanism or other occult practices, that it's extremely helpful for them to specifically renounce the commitments they've made. Have they been involved in a ritual? Then it's useful to specifically renounce that and to stand aside from that and to break its power. Um, this is a really something that we face in counselling people who are uh, struggling with repentance and the need to change their life. For example, if someone's uh, got a habit of persistent lying and they know it's not right, um, 
and, uh, well, and they'd like to be free of it. Firstly, they need to recognize that it's not right. They need to let the truth apply, that it's wrong in God's sight. They need to confess that. And then they need to repent of the lying and uh, be assured of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And if someone was helping them to be free of those, that, those lies, they would lead them through a process like that, confessing the truth, uh, repenting and turning away uh, from, from that uh, old, old way. And when the person does that, then you can pray that the power of lying will be broken in their life. If they don't repent or they don't acknowledge they've committed a sin, uh, it's very uh, difficult or unlikely that you're going to shift them from that sin if they don't think that it's wrong and maybe they might be rather attached to lying and find it quite helpful. So you need to acknowledge the truth, that it's not right, and uh, confess that it's not right, and um, then uh, set it aside and, and renounce it as well. Uh, a bid for freedom requires the full will, the wholehearted will and participation of the person involved. Now, a foothold can be a lie uh, in someone's mind and heart, such as I'm useless or I'm no good, or I'll always be uh, kind of uh, doomed to repeat this sin. Um, a foothold can also be a wound in the soul when someone's been hurt badly, rape or an attack or some sort of denigration that they've experienced. The wound can be like a, a place in the flesh where a hook is held, a, a spiritual point of weakness. If someone's been plagued by fears which have happened because of a traumatic event such as an assault, then you might need to pray for healing of that memory of the, of the experience of the assault uh, before they can be set free from the fear, before in fact they can renounce the fear and uh, find the trust in God that they need. So you can lead a person through forgiving the person that had traumatized them and um, then you can deal with the fear more, more seriously. Um, <clears throat> someone once compared setting people free spiritually to clearing the rats out of a building. Um, you have to get rid of the food that the rats are eating on and when you do, they're much uh, more likely to go. <laughs> and um, setting people free from oppression means acknowledging the truth and working out the, those points of, of bondage. And I'm totally convinced that for Muslims and non-Muslims who have lived under Islam, the Shahada covenant and the covenant of the Vimma are two very profound and significant points of bondage that spiritually bind people and uh, control them and influence them. And they need to be specifically and uh, clearly rejected. Let me give you an example of uh, applying this principle of dealing with the point of vulnerability in order to find freedom, the place, the foothold. I was teaching once on Dimmer and Dimitude in South Africa, and I was approached by a South African woman who had a traumatic experience involving people from a Muslim background about 10 years earlier. At the request of the local seminary and with the encouragement of her pastor, the family offered hospitality to two men, these were Muslim men from the Middle East, or at least they claimed to be former Muslims, and it, it began a, a very difficult time for the family. The guests turned out to be very aggressive, and although they claimed to be Christians, they didn't act like Christians. They mocked her and her family continually. They would push her physically against the walls in her own home and called her a pig. They cursed her and even spat on her as they walked past. She even found small pieces of paper lodged in different places all around her home, and she found out that there were curses written on them in Arabic. The family asked for help for the pastor, but no one would believe them or accept the story that she was telling. She was told that she should be accepting of them and love them because they, she was a Christian. In the end, the family could only get rid of these unwelcome guests by renting an alternative accommodation for them at great cost. And she wrote, At that time we were financially, spiritually, emotionally and physically drained and rock bottom. I did not believe in myself anymore. 
I felt I was good for nothing because they had treated me like dirt. And as I said, the pastor and others had not helped them either in getting free from this. After hearing this presentation on dimitude and the need to be free from abuse, um, she spoke to me and and we confronted the fears and the self-doubt. She faced up to them and she spoke about what had happened and we prayed together for healing of the traumatic experiences that the Lord Jesus would heal those wounds. The words that had been spoken against her, we stood against and broke the power of those words, those curses in the house and the, and the bullying she'd experienced and the intimidation. And as we did that, as we addressed the wounds in her soul, she was wonderfully healed and um, she said to me later, I, I praise God for this heavenly appointment. She felt relieved and worthy to serve the Lord as a woman again. She was healed in her heart. Praise the Lord. She later wrote to me this. We still serve the Lord. We love him more than ever before. We learned so much of the Muslim culture and beliefs and we became stronger through all of this. And we can say that we love the Muslims with the love of the Lord and we'll never stop showing them, showing them this love through our lives and how much Jesus loves each one of them. So she was healed of the fear and the sense of hopelessness and uselessness that she had by addressing the point of the wound, the, the abuse that she's experienced and asked the Lord Jesus to heal that. So that's an example how you sometimes need to take the hook out before you can set the person free from the ties that are connected to that hook. In the end, there's only one pathway to freedom, and that's the cross of Christ and the love of Christ shown to us through the cross. There are many doorways and footholds that Satan uses and tries to implant and force upon us, and but what's important is there's only one way to freedom, and that is the cross. And as I've said, the Dhimma and the Shahada are two particular are strongholds that Satan has established against people. I'd like to speak about the very important issue of uh, intergenerational ties. These are um, bonds that apply to us down the generations. This is quite important when you're dealing with the Shahada or the Dhimma because both of these covenants are intergenerational covenants. Uh, in the Dhimma pact, you and your children are bound by this pact. The men undergo the ritual each year but they're binding their women and their children and it's meant to continue until the end of time uh, because uh, the, once land is conquered by Islam, it can never be returned back to non-Muslim authority. And the peoples that are conquered by Islam have to stay in that situation. Actually, in Sharia law, not really till the end of time, but until Jesus returns um, because Muhammad said that when Jesus returns, he'll abolish the jizya and in fact he will, with his sword, force everyone to become a Muslim, according to the Sharia of Muhammad. So it, this concession of living under um, the Dhimma pact will continue until Jesus comes, but then it'll be even worse because the concession to live won't exist anymore and you'll have to convert or die. But the main point is that it's an intergenerational pact uh, that lasts from generations to generations. Now when people bind themselves spiritually and also their descendants in a pact like that, a pact with death, it has an impact, a spiritual impact, on, the re on their children and on the future generations. And I'd like to reflect with you about how you can deal with that problem. <clears throat> Obviously, it's clear that certain families seem to have a, a, a spiritual inheritance that gets passed on from one generation to the next. The grandfather is an alcoholic, the father is an alcoholic, and the son is an alcoholic. And uh, we've seen, you can see many things like abuse um, and poverty and, uh, and uh, violence or, or, or jealousy and, and, and difficulties that can be almost dog families and, and stay with them, and blessings too can be passed on down family lines. Um, 
it seems that spiritual oppression can, can go from one generation to the next. And actually, that's a, quite a biblical idea as well. Um, you'll, you'll see that in the scriptures. Some Christians find the idea of intergenerational spiritual bondage to be unacceptable or even irrational. If we have a very materialistic view of ourselves, we might uh, instead point to uh, things like the influence of parental behaviours on children. So if the father is a liar, the child might copy the liar and do what he did. Or if a mother curses her child, the, the child might feel upset and copy the behaviour of the mother. If the, uh, if, um, uh, if the father drinks a lot, then the son might do so as well. Well, no doubt, copied intergenerational behaviour does cause damage. Children can do what their parents do. But I don't think that can fully explain the total range of spiritual oppression which people manifest when they come from dark family backgrounds. In my view, the evidence for intergenerational spiritual bondage is absolutely clear. Sometimes we've seen it in witchcraft where uh, people deliberately bind their future generations to the service of a particular spiritual principle. And people can struggle from covenants and blood sacrifices that were made generations before and their influence. Now, it's very important to understand the, wor- the worldview of the Bible in relation to covenants, curses and blessings. The Torah describes how God covenanted with the nation of Israel, dealing with them as an intergenerational community and binding them into a system of blessings and curses which applied from generation to generation, the blessings to the thousandth generation and the curses to the fourth or the third generation, according to Exodus 20, verse 5, and Exodus 34, verse 7. And furthermore, in order for the succeeding generations to be free of the effects of the sins of the ancestors, it says in Leviticus 26, 40, they need to confess their sins and the sins of their fathers. They need to confess their sins and the sins of their fathers. That's what we see Daniel doing when he's praying. He asks for forgiveness for the sins of his forebears. There's a number of examples of this, the importance of the sins of the forebears. So God says then, if they do that, then he will remember their covenant with the ancestors and lead them into a better place, heal them and restore them in their land. Well, since God deals with people intergenerationally in that way in the Bible, why wouldn't Satan claim intergenerational rights against humankind? Indeed, Satan is the accuser. It is said in Revelations 12.10 that he accuses them before our God day and night. He can and he does claim against people intergenerational rights given to him by virtue of their broken covenants with God. For example, Adam and Eve's sin unleashed intergenerational curses against their descendants, such as pain in childbirth in Genesis 3.16, Dominance of men over women and abuse of women by men in Genesis 3.16. Hard labor to eke out a living in Genesis 3.17-18. And ultimately death itself and decay is an intergenerational curse from the fall. Now the scriptures, praise God, do announce a change in these affairs that God will no longer hold people to account for their parents' sins but each person will be responsible for their own sins. Um, and I'd like to uh, speak about, uh, about this and uh, take a bit of time to think about what it means. In Ezekiel, uh, the prophet declares that uh, the children will be no longer held accountable for their parents' sins. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live, says the Lord. 
The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that the world, the way of the world changed completely at that particular point in time? That then there were no more intergenerational effects of sins or curses or blessings? I don't think so. I think that this is a prophecy of the messianic age. It's not a fundamental change in the way this dark world works, the world that's under the control of the evil one, according to the New Testament, but a promise about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. This is a messianic prophecy about the new age. It's speaking about the future. It's a promise not only that under the new covenant God will deal with each person according to their own sins, but that the power of Satan to bind people through their parents' and their ancestors' sins will be broken by the power and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's such an exciting bit of news, by the way. If, you're, if you've come from a family where there's been an intergenerational pattern of, of hurt or destruction, to know that in Christ you're set free from that inheritance. Well, the covenant of the old law, the law of sin and death, did speak of sins and curses and blessings being passed on from one generation to another. But in Christ, this old law, by which Satan claims rights as the accuser to bind us to our parents' sins, is to be set aside and will be rendered null and void. So it's essential to understand in this context that the Shahada and the Dhimma are intergenerational pacts. The Shahada is intergenerational because Islam teaches that children are born Muslim and if they're born as the children of Muslim parents, they are Muslims themselves. It's intergenerational in the case of the Dhimma because this is declared to apply right up until Jesus returns uh, to force everyone to become uh, a follower of the, of the Sharia of Muhammad. So this is a covenant made by a non-Muslim community which is intended to apply forever until the end of time. Men enter this covenant and they get their lives spared on behalf of their wives, their children and their descendants. For in Islamic law, once a territory and its people come under Islamic control, they remain forever the property of the Ummah. So what this means in practice is that people whose ancestors were subjected to the Dhimma Pact can suffer under the spiritual bondage of their forebears as it were to the third and the fourth generation. Actually the claim is made against them really forever. And this accounts in part, I believe, for the fear and the psychological servitude to Islam, which can be observed in, as in this what I've called the Dhimmi syndrome, even one or two generations removed uh, from life under an actual Dhimma. Even though the Dhimma has been relaxed in those nations, the spiritual inheritance still stays the same. And in a sense, every Christian whose ancestors have lived under Islam is a pact breaker if they claim their freedom. I've had some very interesting experiences in uh, praying with people from... Uh, dimmy backgrounds. One woman I prayed with suffered from fear in various areas of her life. Her ancestors had lived as dimmies in Damascus in Syria. And uh, 150 years earlier, there was a famous genocide of the Christians in Damascus, which was a response to the Turks releasing, uh, l- uh, letting, relaxing the laws of the Dhimma Pact. And when we stepped through prayers together, renouncing the Dhimma Pact, the power of fear was broken in her and she found significant significant relief from fear in her daily life. That's 150 years after that traumatic event, and more than 100 years after her ancestors were actually living under the Dhimma Pact. I met a man from an Armenian background. He had ancestors who escaped the genocide in Armenia by changing their names to Greek names and pretending to be Greeks. They escaped through Smyrna to Egypt, 
and ended up um, in New Zealand. The problem was this man suffered from fears on a daily basis. He couldn't leave home without experiencing great trauma and anxiety about whether he'd locked all the doors and windows. He was terrified his possessions would be stolen. However, when he, he renounced the intergenerational fear and the Jizya uh, payments and the Dhimma Pact and the fear associated with the trauma of the past genocides of his people, and we prayed together for release, he experienced significant healing and freedom. It was a very beautiful thing. I believe that this is a key to effective evangelism by Christians who come from non-Muslim backgrounds uh, living under Islamic rule. A group of Arab-speaking Christians used the prayers that we're going to go over in the next sessions, um, and they used these as part of their preparations for an outreach to Muslims who were visiting a European country as tourists. So you had a team of Christians, and they were being prepared for evangelism. As part of that evangelism, they went through some of this teaching and renounced the Dhimma Pact explicitly as a group together. Although this evangelistic team were in fact in a free country and many of them were living outside the Middle East, yet as they met together they confessed that they felt fearful about sharing their faith. It's a common experience of people from a dimmy background. As they talked, their hearts were open to the need to be healed from this fear. It was identified that the fear came from a covenant with death that their ancestors had made, the dimmer pact. And one leader said, the fear lives inside you because of the covenant made on your behalf. After discussing the explanations of the Dhimma Pact and its meaning, the team prayed prayers of freedom together and deliverance, renounced the Dhimma Pact, and on the last day of the program, they had an evaluation. This is what the report was of that training and that breaking of the bond of the Dhimma for the evangelistic team. The leader said, The results were amazing. Without any exception, all those who attended expressed powerfully that this was an essential ministry training topic and a cause for deep blessings and true freedom, especially that everyone had the opportunity to renounce the Dhimma covenant and declare their covenant with Jesus through his blood. Praise God, there is freedom from this pact in the blood of Jesus through prayer. So it is necessary to renounce the covenants of the ancestors as well as the covenants that we have made ourselves with fear. One of the things that troubles me when, when leaders uh, such as President Bush uh, declare things over their nations like Islam is a religion of peace or we owe a debt to Islam is that in a sense they establish in the spiritual realm a covenant on behalf of their nation. They make a spiritual claim over their own nation. They enter into a covenant of submission. And uh, I believe that the work remains then for future leaders to renounce that submission and to claim freedom in Christ, and that a nation can come under a bondage of spiritual oppression because of those sorts of statements. That's why it's very important to be careful how we use our lips and the things that we say, that we be sure that we only speak the truth. And um, I believe that when leaders do that, then you begin to see people in the nation acting in frightened ways and no longer having the freedom and the independence they should have because something has been established. It's as if Satan could go to God and say, look, this, this leader has declared uh, this and this about Islam, so I claim the rights of that legally to execute my plans in this nation based on that. So it's very important not to enter into these agreements, as it were, uh, with things that aren't true and to give, give permission to Satan to harass and uh, offend his pe the people of God uh, through these sorts of statements. I have been so excited to see the freedom that's come into so many people's lives through this ministry of 
truly renouncing Satan and all his works, and particularly his work of binding people into the fear of death through the shahada and the penalty that it includes for apostates and those that leave Islam, that is the penalty of death, and also the, 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 the covenant of the dhimma and the penalty of death that's attached with that for anyone who stands against the principles of Islam and claims their own freedom. So they are generational ties, and I just want to emphasize uh, that it is in the kingdom of Christ that the promise of Ezekiel is fulfilled, that we can break with the ancestral ties and declare our freedom. But it's often the case that we need to do that explicitly and specifically reject uh, the covenants of the ancestors, just as Daniel specifically sought forgiveness for the sins of the ancestors. And Leviticus asked the people of Israel to do that as well. It can be very powerful, in fact, when your forebears have done terrible things, if you together collectively repent, turn away from that and ask for the Lord to heal you and heal your land. Now, I'd like to speak about blood pacts and their significance. The Dhimma Oath is a blood pact. In the Hebrew Scriptures, a standard way of binding yourself in a covenant was by blood sacrifice. When God makes a famous covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, it's enacted through a sacrifice. So Abraham provides the animal, he slaughters it and lays the parts of the animal on the ground, separated, and then a smoking flame representing the presence and participation of God passes along between the parts of the animal. Now, that, that covenant is designed to invoke a curse, whether it's stated explicitly or not, which is, may I become like this animal if I break the covenant? That is, may I be killed and cut in pieces. Um, this shows up in a, in a comment of the prophet Jeremiah, a warning against those who violate the covenant that was sealed with a sacrifice. In uh, Jeremiah 34, verses 18 to 20, the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf, I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. So that promise, may I become like those animals, is fulfilled in the curse when they don't keep the covenant. So that's what a blood oath is. It's the cross my heart and hope to die moment where you bind yourself to a particular outcome through that, through that oath. Occult initiation rituals that are practiced in witchcraft can involve binding a person through the use of blood, symbolically signifying death, or uh, sometimes death is symbolically invoked by curses of self-destruction, wearing a symbol of death, such as a noose around the neck or a ritualized expression of death. Sometimes people are placed in a coffin, or this is a symbolic stabbing in the heart. Secret societies often have death rituals, what are called blood oath rituals, as part of their initiation procedures. This is the case with the Chinese Tong groups, for example, the secret societies there. And also in Freemasonry, a number of the rituals in Freemasonry involve blood oaths. For example, the entered apprentice rite involves hanging a noose around the candidate's neck, pricking his breast with a compass or a sharp dagger, and he recites curses uh, as part of the ritual on his life and body. For example, all this I most solemnly and sincerely promise and swear, binding myself under no less penalty than that of having my throat cut across, my tongue torn out by its roots, and my body buried in the rough sands of the seas at low watermark where the tide ebbs and flows twice in 24 hours should I ever knowingly violate this my entered apprentice obligation. 
the obligation being to keep the, the oaths of the secret society secret. So help me God. Uh, we've ministered to a number of people who've been affected uh, through Freemasonry over the years. I remember well the case of one woman, very capable woman, highly educated with a PhD, and she gave birth to a baby, and after the birth, uh, her pelvis was split. It was unable to heal. She had a um, disability, uh, disabled sticker on her car. She couldn't lift her child. Uh, it was in severe pain uh, 24 hours a day. Through a ministry of renunciation and, and uh, setting her free, she renounced her ancestors' commitment to Freemasonry and broke with it. And as she did, she was dramatically healed. Dramatically healed. Something that was oppressing her from Freemasonry left her and her pelvis was knitted at that moment and she danced down the aisle the very next day in church. And she went home and lifted up her daughter and her daughter was amazed because she'd never been carried before by her mother. And uh, that was a case of an intergenerational effect of a of a curse, of a commitment made by a male ancestor. And the key to her freedom was recognizing that commitment, declaring the truth, renouncing it, and breaking its power. We've seen many examples of people being transformed by understanding this. Now, blood oaths are particularly powerful because they invoke the ultimate penalty that Satan wants to incur against people, which is death. The, the Jizya oath is such an oath. Basically, when the Dhimmi is forced to go through with it, what they are saying is, you can take my head if I break any of these rules or if I don't keep my covenant or don't pay my tax. It's a ritual submission and giving away of their life. And that's why the Muslims, in a lot of the accounts of the commentators, make very clear to the Dhimmis that they have to understand that they're buying their life as Magili said in that passage I read out before, so that he will know that he is he's escaping with his head, as it were, with his life, because of the payment of the ritual, to understand it. So the ritual invokes a death curse which the Dhimmi brings upon himself and his community. Actually, on the women, there's a curse of rape, and the possession's the curse of looting and dispossession. In a sense, they're saying, may I be decapitated if I break any of these, these conditions. Now, blood pacts or blood oaths, whether there's actual blood spilt or a ritualized form of death, are spiritually powerful because they set up footholds and doorways to spiritual oppression. They bind the person to the conditions of the pact and they establish psycho-spiritual permissions for the person to be oppressed in accordance with the curses invoked by the pact. I remember uh, hearing the testimony of some Christians in, in Sydney years ago who were planning an evangelistic outreach and they went to the public park where they were planning to hold this event and they were praying for God's will and God's kingdom in relation to their work. But as they were praying, some Muslims came to do their ritual daily prayers in the park and as those prayers began, one of the Christians said, I, I can't continue, I feel so frightened. I don't have courage to continue. The key to understanding the fear that he was under was the generational bondage to fear uh, that his uh, ancestral line had been tied to. And we need to understand this has gone on for a thousand years in the case of some communities. And it has many profound effects on their psychology and their spiritual freedom. Sometimes quite surprising effects. Uh, one woman from a dimmy background had been suffering from nightmares in which deceased relatives would appear in her nightmares and beckon her to come to the land of the dead. She'd been plagued with also illogical suicidal thoughts for which there was no apparent explanation. 
As we talked and prayed, it emerged that other members of her family in previous generations had also had inexplicable nightmares about death, which troubled them greatly. I discerned as we talked that her ancestors had lived under the curse of death from the Thimmer Pact for generations, and that the fear of death was oppressing her because of that. We prayed against this, rebuking the power of death and cancelling the specific curse of death associated with the ancestors' participation in the Jizya payment ritual. We also broke the power of the blow on the neck and the symbolism of being strangled. After these prayers, the woman experienced great relief from the nightmares and the thoughts of death and was set free. In the prayers that uh, you'll be able to go through soon, um, you'll see that they're quite explicit, that specific aspects of the ritual and also the meaning of the Dhimma Pact are revoked and dealt with one by one. It's necessary to be specific because that is strengthens the person's will and declares in the spiritual realm exactly what's being done, so there's no ambiguity about it. Now I'd like to speak as the, the final topic in this particular session about what it means to have authority to set free and to be set free. <clears throat> when pursuing freedom, it's sometimes necessary to take quite specific steps which counteract and renounce previous ungodly commitments. In the Old Testament, when idols in their high places are commanded to be completely destroyed, there is there for us a model about how to ransack spiritual territory. We see this, for example, in Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 to 3. The high places, the ritual sites, the ritual objects and the altars had to be completely destroyed together with the idols themselves. It's very significant that, uh, in fact, uh, Solomon built a temple to Molech because one of his wives was a worshipper of the God of sacrifice of children, a part of the Canaanite religion that was practiced uh, for centuries later, really. And the Phoenicians uh, took it to Carthage as well. Uh, we found uh, thousands of, uh, the archaeologists have found thousands of sacrificed children's uh, remains in the, in the ruins of Carthage. Uh, and uh, uh, Solomon was built this temple. Uh, but later when it was destroyed, when it was destroyed, it was, it was ground down to the ground and in fact human bones were ploughed into the ground to desecrate and destroy uh, that site and its spiritual power. So a very deliberate decision uh, to ransack that, that spiritual ground. When pacts have been entered into, they need to be revoked specifically one by one and each of the conditions and consequences. Um, it's helpful to name your specific sins when you're uh, confessing them and also when you're claiming spiritual freedom from past commitments that are ungodly, it's helpful to specifically name them and stand against them. And also there's an application of truth when you do that, that the truth of God is being shone right into the heart of the matter so that you can, um, you can receive forgiveness for it. So also, the principle of specificity applies when you're announcing ungodly covenants. For example, if you've bound yourself to a vow of silence through blood sacrifice, as some people do in, in uh, witchcraft and other cults, uh, you need to repent of that vow and renounce the ritual itself and the elements of it and annul the vow made through it. Otherwise, you might find it quite difficult uh, to be free and be able to speak. Also, if someone has said, just a more mundane example, someone said, I'll never forgive this person as long as I live, and then later is troubled with feelings of unforgiveness and hatred, not only to that person but to others as well, it might be necessary for that person to renounce having said, I will never forgive so-and-so as long as I, I live. They might need to say, Lord, please forgive me for saying that I would never forgive that person as long as I live. 
I renounce that vow and I take it back and I ask you to release me from it. So it's quite a specific thing that needs to be done. Also, a victim of sexual abuse who's agreed to remain silent on pain of death might need to renounce that vow of silence. For example, to say, before the Lord and before a witness, I renounce my silence about what's been done to me and I claim the right to speak out and to speak the truth. I will not be silent anymore. Sometimes speaking the truth in that way and affirming uh, what you're going to do and your rejection of the things that have passed are the key that turns the lock of, of the door of freedom. It's also necessary in, in praying for freedom from dimitude and from the shahada to renounce things specifically, to renounce the blow on the neck, for example, which accompanied the payment of the ritual. Jesus instructed his disciples and said that they had power to bound and lo- bind and loose in the heavens and upon the earth, that is, in the spiritual realm and also in the physical domain. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be, or it could be mean has been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be, or it could mean has been loosed on, in heaven, in, on earth. It's a wonderful comfort, really, that Christians can and do have the power to break ungodly pacts and vows. It's amazing. It's really great. It's fantastic. It's the most exciting thing. Because the covenant in the blood of Christ annuls and destroys the power of every pact that's made for evil purposes. This is a promise that's found in the Messianic passage in Zechariah. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Because of the blood of the covenant, because of the blood of Christ shed for us, we are set free from that hole in the ground where they used to throw people and you could never get out of that pit. Through the cross, God tells us, victory is achieved over the powers and the principalities of this dark age in Colossians 2. 13 to 15. This triumph of God plunders the evil powers and takes away their rights to rule. It destroys their power. It's one of the most exciting things that through the cross, the claims that have been made against us that are tied to the example of Muhammad in the Shahada and all the promises and curses that are inherent in the, in the Dhimma Pact are broken and destroyed. In the prayers that I'm going to introduce you to in the next uh, session, Um, we will go through a five-step process. It might not be immediately apparent to you, but I thought it would be helpful just to point out what those steps are now. The first step is to declare the truth. For example, if you're struggling with fear, the first thing to do is to declare the scriptures that that state that we are free from fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self-control. So that's the first thing, declare the truth. The second thing is to confess sin. Usually when we've been intimidated or bound by something that's not good, we um, actually need to confess the acceptance of that, the acceptance of fear, for example. You might struggle with fear, and there's a sense in which we entertain fear or allow it to have a place in us. So it's important to confess your sin. Lord, please forgive me for having accepted uh, fear in my heart and having entertained it. Sometimes um, people... Uh, for fear, sometimes people almost hang on to these oppressions. Uh, it sort of comforts them. It's familiar. Um, I've known people who are very fearful, but they're fearful that if they weren't afraid, they wouldn't be safe, that the fear will keep them safe because the fear warns them that they shouldn't go into particular situations. So fear can be like a security blanket. Uh, one person once said to me that fear was like a, a dark blanket wrapped around them, and they were wrapped up in that. So they need to be willing to confess to the Lord that that's a sin, really, 
uh, to be tied to those things. No matter how much they might have been forced upon you, no matter how much you might want to be free of them, you have to, if you've actually entertained them, um, you need to confess that. It's one thing for someone to break into your house and steal your possessions, but it's another thing for him to break in and you say, sit down, have a cup of tea, let me give you a meal, please take whatever you want. And it's that act of, of welcoming or letting in of entertaining uh, that needs to be renounced, seek forgiveness. Or if you're, um, if you're struggling uh, from something that you've said to somebody else, you might need to forgive, seek forgiveness uh, from the Lord or from the person for what you've said. The third step is to renounce. You know, legally, if you're making a claim against someone, you can renounce it. So I won't make that claim anymore. Someone might give you an inheritance and you say, oh, look, I renounce that, I will not receive it. So if you enter into something that's wrong, you can renounce that. Now, you need to have legally the right to do that. If you enter into a contract with someone and they come and say, look, you owe me $100,000 because you contracted to pay me, you can't just say, oh, I renounce that claim. Well, you could try it, but the problem is that they'll go after you in court and the judge might say, no, you have to pay up. But sometimes you can renounce things if you have authority to. Why do we have authority to renounce covenants we've made with death, with fear, with intimidation? And destruction, because Christ carried upon himself all those things for us. Because he's borne those penalties on the cross, that's why we have authority to renounce those covenants with death. So that's the third point, you need to renounce those agreements. So the first is declare the truth. That strengthens us. It brings things into their proper perspective. Satan hates the truth. It silences the enemy. The second is confess your sin. That's just making sure there's no hooks or footholds, things that might be claimed against you. It's claiming the blood of Christ for yourself. The third is to renounce and specifically, explicitly reject each of the things that might be involved in that aspect of surrender. The fourth thing is, is, is a declaration of breaking. You can do this for yourself, but often it's good for someone else to do this with you. In the name of Jesus, I break the power of unforgiveness or the power of fear that's been affecting you. That's like the word that Jesus spoke sometimes to demons. Come out of him in the name of Jesus. It's a declaration that it's done. It's finished. It's like you can go to the court and say, I've renounced this claim, but when the judge says, I I release you from it, it's an act of breaking. And uh, it's good to pray with someone who will do that on your behalf. And the the last step is to bless. Whatever the, the, the pain has been and the loss has been, the suffering has been, it's good when you've renounced it and sought healing to bless the person and to seek God's blessing. For example, if someone struggled with fear, then you bless them with courage and and announce and pronounce upon them every good thing. So if you've claimed uh, uh, freedom, if you're claiming freedom from the the jizya inheritance, from the dhimma pact, then one of the things you'd be seeking to claim a blessing for is is the gift of life and freedom to live and and not be afraid of death anymore. Uh, So that blessing is important. So there's five steps. Declare the truth, confess sin, renounce the works of darkness and break the covenant, declare a breaking of, of, of what's been tying you and finally declare the blessing of God. And uh, it's so exciting. So Jesus is so sweet, you know, he's so beautiful. And uh, it's really wonderful to see him at work and to see him set people free. I believe that uh, this, this, this message, this uh, power of the cross... Uh, to undo the works of darkness and to bring them into the light so they can be seen clearly 
for what they are and, and broken off us is, is so crucial. It's crucial for the church, the, 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 the persecuted church under Islam to rise up. It's crucial for people in the West who are coming under, coming under the influence of this dimmy worldview and are being subjected to it by the false and foolish statements of their leaders and sometimes even by church leaders, by fears that rise up in their hearts when there are major traumas and terrorist attacks. I believe that God is calling us into freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So let's live as free people. And in the next session, I'll show you how to do that uh, with these two covenants of the Shahada and the Dhimma Pact.